0: the Data Science Deploy podcast. I'm Ben.
1: I'm, I'm Donnie.
0: <laughs> uh, today we're going to interview Jillian to learn more about her work in bioinformatics. Uh, so let's just jump right in. Jillian, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about BioDeploy.
2: Yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, to hit on some background there, I really think That research scientists, scientists, people who are doing data science should be able to understand and deploy their own infrastructure. That's something I've always, you know, been really passionate about and have moved things along in kind of various areas. I worked quite a bit on um, Conda packaging for a while until like I built all the packages I could possibly build and then, you know, moved on from that. I built a lot of um, Docker containers I worked on a lot of workflow management systems and runners to help scientists actually be able to deploy their analyses to an HPC environment. So this is just kind of, I feel like carrying on with that, uh, with you know, with the work that I've been doing specifically on AWS and on the cloud. And um, I suppose the, the big point of Biohub is that it's going to enable scientists to deploy their own data science infrastructure on the cloud that's going to include uh, JupyterHub clusters, Studio clusters, and also your traditional HPC along with the AWS flavor of HPC. So that's kind of the, you know, like the big picture of what it's doing. And then I'm hoping a little bit farther on down the line, I'm going to be able to start to really, you know, get into the very particular types of applications and uh, some very particular problems in bioinformatics that people are creating kind of what I call the the new age of data visualization applications to be able to solve some of these issues, because another push that I've seen in recent years is to have, you know, these very, very interactive applications that you can really go and in real time, you know, process, analyze and kind of view and just make different models and all kinds of different things with your data. So I'm very interested in, you know, I want to have a web interface and I want a scientist to be able to click a button. That says deploy my, you know, single cell analysis application and it just it spins up all the background for them. it spins up all the infrastructure for them in the background, gives it to them in a web browser and you know they just don't even really have to worry about anything else.
0: And so are those are those custom one off web applications or is that uh, built on something like Dask? How, how did how do you picture that working.
2: So it will depend a bit on the application. For some of these applications, there are, uh, you know, like well-known solutions. So for example, with a type of analysis called single cell, which is analyzing, uh, you know, analyzing cells as a bioinformatics problem. There are applications already available for that. One is called CellX Gene, and that's one that I see to be quite popular. That's um, like, that's already built and managed. So for that, that would look something like taking the Docker application that is the CellX Gene, uh, Creating, you know, a Helm chart, which is a type of configuration that you use to deploy these applications, and making it configurable in a way that the person, that the scientist, can very easily plug and play. Say, okay, I want to run um, Celix Gene with this particular data set. I need this much, uh, you know, memory, CPU. Um, I can't remember if Celix Gene does use Dask in the background, but quite a bit of these applications do use. Dask or Apache in the background. So, then that's another thing that we would also be able to, you know, to customize for the user is again, have a web form that says, you know, okay, so you need Dask with this, or Dask can make it run so much faster. And we will um, spin that up dynamically for you for this particular application and have kind of a, you know, like a house, like a cell gene house, and everything is in there. You know, so that will have your application, your data set. Uh, your DAS cluster, if you need one, your Apache cluster, if you need that. And these things will be, yeah, again, dynamically um, spun up and down.
0: That makes a lot of sense. One, one more follow-up before we move on. What is the AWS flavor of HPC?
2: It is called AWS Batch. And there's actually kind of a funny story with that. So AWS, you know, when they were, uh, I mean, I think this was some time ago, maybe like four or five years ago, they were moving along and they were really, you know creating a bunch of cool solutions for everybody and they released this aws batch which was their own flavor of hpc but the bioinformatics people were like well no we just want you know our standard hpc what is this and so they created a project um, called star cluster i think it came out of mit but don't you know don't get mad at me internet if that's not the case that was just the standard um hpc cluster which is usually using a scheduler called slurm and uses just kind of you know, computers and storage and kind of, uh, you know, maybe an HPC environment, the software or the bioinformatics people were used to. And then at some point after that, AWS released another uh, another tool to deploy kind of your traditional HPC clusters called parallel cluster that can now, that is now kind of taken over the star cluster application. So bioinformatics people, you can have, you know, the fancy AWS HPC, or you can have just the usual HPC with Slurm and network file storage, and it's all fine. You can have both, or either.
0: Does, does the Slurm approach, I'm not familiar with the sort of star cluster, parallel cluster, but do they also run on Docker containers, or is that more straight on the host?
2: Nope, straight on the host. It's much more, uh, you know, like it runs off of EC2 instances, which are okay. the AWS flavor of just, you know, just spinning up a Linux server. So if you can, I mean, they did a good job with it. If you can manage a Linux server, you can probably manage an HPC cluster on AWS as well.
1: Jillian, you mentioned uh, the importance with, with the scientists of, of uh, interactivity. And I'm wondering how that, how that plays, if there's any conflict between interactive versus deployed. A lot of people, when they think of something is being deployed, it's almost like it it's it's going out into space and it, it kind of has to be, you know, this, this 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 object that's there. But it seems like a lot of uh, you know, scientists, your customers maybe, you know, want want some interactivity where they're kind of like building the tool a little bit and putting it out there. And I don't know, I also think of the the conflict between a lot of people who just, you know, want to buy a microscope and put it up there or there are people who build the microscopes. Um, and so it's like, what is that that tension, especially with with scientific research? I'm sure with with interactive development versus de- deploying. Like, how does that how does that play out in terms of the you know, infrastructure? Yeah,
2: that is actually it's less of an infrastructure problem and more of a people problem. So traditionally, there's been uh, you know quite a bit of tension and back and forth between kind of your typical IT departments and your research staff. So quite a lot of, uh, you know, like larger IT departments, if they're supporting a lot of research, they'll actually have a department within IT called advanced computing or research computing or HPC or something like that. And that department is just to deal with the researchers because the rest of IT won't do it. Uh, you know, I worked in actually a department like that for a few years. It was it was very interesting. I learned a lot. Um, but yeah, but that's, I think, because historically, you know, if you wanted to have... If you wanted to be able to do computing, you had to go and scope all of that out buy a data center, hire admins, hire networking people, you know, all that kind of thing. And you really had to plan everything, you know, very, very far in advance, you know, maybe five to 10 years in advance because you don't want to buy a whole data center. And then, you know, a year or a few months in realize like this, this isn't enough or it's too much or, you know, just have it not fit your needs. So now I think with the advent of more cloud computing, People are moving much more towards this kind of idea of on-demand commuti- computing. It should spin up when I need it to and only when I need it to. And um, yeah, I think this is just kind of a new paradigm that everybody's getting used to and moving more towards. In my experience, pretty much all the startups that I work with decided to go straight for AWS for cloud computing. And the reason that they did that was that they didn't want to have to go buy an entire data center and hire uh, you know, hire a bunch of support staff to manage that. They did not want to have to hire an IT department.
0: It's hard to blame them. Uh, I'm yeah, curious... it's, it's <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you talked a little bit in your book about a virtual lab. I wonder if you could just expand on that concept for us a little bit.
2: Yeah, sure. So a virtual lab is this idea that you should have, Everything that you need for your data science project, and it should be kind of, uh, you know, I'll say containerized, but I don't quite mean containerized because I think that has such a specific connotation with Docker. Um, But the idea is that you should have, you know, all of your documentation, you should have your data sets, it should be reproducible, it should, um, it should have these applications that you might be using. So, you know, for example, a lot of people are using things like Streamlit, MLflow. Um, R Shiny or Dash to get these kind of very interactive data visualizations that you can really go and show, okay, this is exactly what's happening with the data, be able to plot out your data life cycle, all of these, uh, all of these kind of issues that data scientists face when they are trying to, you know, do reproducible research. And then uh, in addition, part of the you know kind of part of the background is what's interesting from my point of view is well how do we get to this virtual lab and to be able to get to a virtual lab you really you need to have the infrastructure set up and it's you know ideally it should be a bit behind the scenes and transparent and the data science shouldn't even particularly have to deal with it you know so the data scientist should not be doing things like going and having to i don't know what request more storage from it or something like that that should just be built into the solution to begin with And that's why I think, you know, all of these cloud computing technologies are so interesting and so useful because you can really, you know, start from the ground up with building, um, you know, this kind of very stepwise approach, which is you have your development infrastructure, which is probably an HPC cluster. If you're running uh, like very long running jobs, you know, analyses that take, you know, days or maybe even weeks, you want an HPC cluster, whether that's traditional or AWS doesn't really matter too much at that stage. And then, in addition, you want this, you know, this kind of new layer that I really see coming up more and more where you have these auto scaling. You know Jupiter hub or our shiny clusters and people are really able to go into those to interact with them and it's I think a much different user experience than the traditional HPC was where we used to do things like you know if I would have an analysis. And I knew it was going to take like a week, it would spit out a bunch of like PDF reports with, you know, different plots and box plots and distributions and all these kind of things, because that was just, you know, that was just the way that it was the data sets were too big to be able to do any kind of interactive analysis on them. Uh, And I feel like that's, you know, thankfully, we're really moving away from that. That's really changing. So, you know, so you have your, uh, you know, you have your long running analyses, you have your development clusters that are meant to be very automatically scalable. And because you have these new technologies, like you have Dask and Apache, you almost have like an HPC cluster that's a bit like built into your application, which, you know, which is very, very informative of your data, especially if you're trying to deal with a very large amount of data, uh, which I know is a very big issue in particular. Well, I suppose it is in all kind of areas, but in particular, it is in bioinformatics. We're constantly outpacing, you know, like the the amount of data. Every time you buy a new microscope, chances are you are going to be generating like exponentially more data than you were with the previous one. If you do sequencing data, that's constantly getting, you know, higher resolution and larger data sets. Um, so the idea is that then you have this kind of middle layer that really I think of it as sitting in between the high performance compute clusters and the final. Um, I suppose if you're in startup land, this would be like some kind of final intellectual property. And if you're in research, you know, maybe it's a research project or a research paper, but eventually you want to have something really concrete come out of all this data and all of this analysis. And that really concrete thing that comes out of that is what I think of as being the virtual lab and the clusters underneath the hood are really to support that outcome.
0: That's really interesting. So you talk about this sort of ideal state of the data science team can manage their own compute. They don't need to uh, bug the IT team every time they need a little bit more storage or a little bit more compute. Um, so if I'm, if I'm running a brand new data science team, should I just open up an AWS account and start clicking around? Like, wh- how, how do you go from blank slate to actual compute that you can use to do bioinformatics analysis?
2: I think that's a really interesting question and i think overall um, different people are tackling this in different ways and i kind of i like to think of it as sort of the devops people are maybe a bit behind the software people so for example in the software world in the data science space it used to be that you really kind of had to code everything by hand and now we have all these nice libraries like numpy i do not have to code matrix algebra ever 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 again for which i'm very grateful we have tasks so i don't have to write mpi anymore and that's great you know so as time has gone by the kind of the software folks have gotten some really really good libraries and good systems in place for data scientists so that they can get i would say an awful lot of their work done without actually having to be software engineers if they can understand a data frame and a matrix and you know maybe a little bit more than that they're you know they're going to be able to move along pretty well with these tools and i would say in devops land we're not We're not quite that far, I don't think, and that's um, a problem that I am personally trying to tackle, in particular with Biohub, with creating uh, different, you know, different recipes, different deployment scenarios that wrap up a bunch of the, the Lego pieces in AWS and deploy them into something that is actually functional. Because I found, uh, you know, that tends to be a pretty big problem with people when they're first starting out is they're like, okay, I'm going to get an AWS account and they sign up. And then there's a lot of things in the AWS console. I don't know if you guys have taken a look in there lately, but there is like, I don't even know how many menus there are in there. And then you get different menus based on like different contexts and different regions. And If you're just starting out, it can be, you know, it can be very, very overwhelming to even just go in there and deploy. You know, just like a simple server. Like I, you know, I worked in IT, and the first time I logged into AWS to just deploy a server and be able to SSH and add NFS storage on there. Took me like a couple days. You know, so instead I really want to move towards these. um, Yeah, I guess I mean, I think of them as, you know, just pre-configured recipes that are going to allow data scientists to deploy these common scenarios that they need. So what do they need? They need HPC clusters, they need AWS batch clusters and they need Kubernetes clusters, and in particular, um, a lot of the scientists that I work with, they don't really tend to care very much about the underlying infrastructure. Some of them don't even want to know about it. Some of them will just straight up tell me they'll be like, "Listen, I used to be able to do this with Excel on a lab computer, and if I still could, I would be doing that, and I would never even talk to you." So what you know? So like so essentially, they really they just they just don't want to know about any of it. They just want to do their science. That's what's their you know, what they're interested in, that's what their uh, expertise is in, that's where they wanna be focused. And I think that's fantastic and that they should be able to do that. So in particular, one of the things that I'm really focusing on with Biohub is to actually have a very science first approach, which is why I'm talking about, instead of telling people, oh, you need to deploy a Kubernetes cluster, I mean, most of my clients would be like, Kubernetes, what? You know, instead it's, no, you're going to deploy a Jupyter Hub cluster. You're going to deploy um, an Studio server. It's going to scale for you automatically. You know, like, I mean, of course, words like this, they're going to understand. And then also to get into these different, you know, these different applications. So, for example, Celix Gene, um, deploy their shiny, you know, shiny Dash Streamlit. There, there are too many of them for me to name right now. You know, all these different applications that they are developing in-house instead of, You know, starting, I think, where a lot of the DevOps people expect for people to start, like all the way at at the bottom end of that stack that I discussed earlier from, you know, HPC to dev to application. I want for people to be able to start where they're comfortable and, you know, meet the scientists where they're at, which is I need to deploy infrastructure to analyze single cell data or sequencing data or high content screening data. And we're going to start from that and then work our way down. So, BioDeploy is going to deploy all the
1: bioinformatics-related things. That makes a lot of sense. I yeah, the, just the level of abstraction that people want to deal with. You know, if, if someone wants to, you know, to do matrix multiplication, you know, they shouldn't have to learn the IEEE 754 standard for floating point numbers. <laughs> and I mean, just no. we're sort of past that. Um, I mean they can, but, but I mean they, they just don't have to. And so the similar thing, yeah. AWS has all these wonderful primitives and means of combining them, but really people don't want to have to create their own abstractions. They kind of just, like you said, with with with, uh, with Dask and NumPy, they kind of just want to say like, here, here's a, here's. A, I, I don't really know what Jupiter, what what what, uh, what Kubernetes is, but I know Jupiter, and I had to play Jupiter Hub cluster because that's kind of the language that I use. So. Um, I, I love, love that what you said the science first approach you know sort of a, a specialization of like domain specific talking to to you know what what they're what they're talking about um it's definitely interesting what you mentioned also with this 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 middle layer between HBC and, and the final research paper and, and having this 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 bigger back end um you know one one question that you know I had prepared was how do people go from from research to production, but it, but it sounds like almost in this case there's that, but there's also like how do you kind of have this this circle where you're kind of doing re- like your research is your production all the time, um, and I, I'm just wondering how, how people are sort of approaching that um, in, in, in science and research. It's maybe um, different than than how people do it in other areas of of deploying um, data science.
2: Yeah, I found overall people, uh, you know, by people, I mean, research scientists are really trying to create more and more what I sort of call like standard operating procedures. So, you know, if we have this type of data, we should have this type of standard analysis that is always run on this data. And, you know, to be very, very careful with, I suppose, plotting that out with planning the analysis with, you know, making sure that the data is really run its course. And in order to get to that point, you know, you really you need to spend a lot of time, you know, like even just researching the analysis itself. So before people can even get to those standardized pipelines, you know, before that they're developing the analysis and what do they need to develop the analysis? Well, they need, you know, they need the the HPC or kind of like a Jupyter Hub cluster for that. Kind of just lost track of what I was gonna say. But yeah, oh, and then um, additionally, you know, so along with the, you know, with the SOPs, I am a really big fan of, writing kind of living documentation i suppose so less like documentation sort of what we think of in the software world where it's like it's very very technical but instead more like exploratory documentation and that's why i'm so interested in these technologies uh you know like JupyterHub hub R studio where you can create kind of these you know these documents that really explain not kind of the end product but instead the thought process that you used as you walk through the data so you know so for example if you're doing a data analysis and you have some data and it's the first time you know you've even gone through this type of data maybe you're really early on in kind of developing the production analysis flow you know i mean you'll probably go through and plot distributions and try to find different ways to clean the data or to normalize the data see where the outliers are uh, see where data falls off and as you're doing all these things you know you you could be documenting everything um, you know, everything that you do in a Jupyter Hub notebook or in the R Studio document, I forget what they call that, like the R markdown, that kind of thing. So instead of having, you know, the end product documentation, instead have something that's much more exploratory and really shows like where your thought process was going. And I think if everybody kind of keeps on that all during the process, which I know is much easier said than done, but, you know, if everybody keeps on that, then hopefully, by the end, at least uh, the people who are working on the data should have a good understanding of everything that's that's gone into the data, and then also be able to make more informed decisions for their final production analysis if that's where they want to go.
1: Great. Uh, another question I have is, is: we've talked a lot about um, kind of an application-centric view of things and, and setting up all these different applications and. Um, but I'm wondering what's your approach to how, how people can, can manage their data or get an overview of it. I know with like a real lab, sort of everything is at least in the lab, <laughs> um, or like you have a physical lab notebook and, you know, it'll, everything will, will be in there. And so, you know, you might not be able to find something in your lab, but it, it's, it's going to be in this room somewhere, you know? Um, so I, how, how do you help people manage if they have this sort of, ecosystem of applications, Jupiter Hub, but you are trying all these things, but they all have data that, that they might want to transport between applications or or just how do how do people manage manage their data? How do you help them with that? Especially in this this dynamic research um, environment.
2: That's 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 been a really interesting problem to work on through the years. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit like old school about it, I kind of I want to be able to go into a terminal and run tree and have a pretty good idea of what is happening in the data, maybe I have a max depth in there somewhere so that I don't see everything. But essentially what I usually like to do with that is set up the data analysis in such a way I will have a folder that says raw like raw data, so this is the data directly from the sequencer nobody's allowed to touch this or. Uh, You know, it's set in such a way that it's read only, so we always have a copy of the raw data and then, you know, go into this idea of having the process data and then generally in the process data have, you know, directories within there that say the different steps. So say, you know, um, for for sequencing data, this would be something like QC and then uh, alignment and then variant calling and then some kind of filtration steps, you know, so you go through these sort of various data analysis steps. And each one of those should be in its own directory, and ideally each one of those steps should also come a bit with like its own report. So I think the QC one is kind of the easiest to do that because most QC tools, at least in the bioinformatics space, have their own reports that they output because that's, you know, quality control, right? That's what you're doing with QC. Uh, Ideally, each one of the other steps would have that. So if um, you're analyzing something you know again sequencing data sequencing data is usually genomics data so if you've ever done something like uh, you know like 23andme or you know if you're aware of the fact that you can you can analyze your own genome if you want to or you can send it to a company who will analyze it for you you know so let's so let's take one of those companies that would analyze your genomics data for you they should have kind of these processes where they're like okay so qc we lost this much of the data due to these problems and then the next step you know, alignment, we were able to align this much of the genome. And then the next step is variant calling. Okay, we called variants on this many positions in the genome, whereas, you know, and if we compare that to kind of where other samples were or where the other genomic data is, you would think that would be kind of right, you know, sort of in a equilibrium, I suppose, not too high, not too low, kind of a Goldilocks sort of zone. And, you know, for every step along the way, you know you really need to have people who actually really understand the data and the analysis as well to go through and just say hey what makes sense at this stage what should we be reporting on what should you know like what should happen what should the output be what are kind of our flags to say hey something something strange happened here and all these kinds of processes it's um it's definitely it's a long process though and i mean that's why you have in particular you know research scientists that really they will work on a single single problem for decades to really get to this point.
0: I think it's interesting, interesting to hear you talk about sort of uh, folder structure and the stages of the analysis and, and storing those all in separate places. What about versioning? Because I, I would imagine a lot of those stages are gonna depend on s- some sort of code version, some Git commit is the way I would think about it. Like eventually you're gonna change that commit is there a good way to know like which of these stages now need to be updated based on, on this, this function I just changed.
2: You have to have really good documentation to know that that's actually what got me really interested in building software for the conda package manager was that I felt like that was, uh, you know, much more built in and you could have, you know, so say for example, your analysis and, uh, within your analysis folder, you could have a conda environment variable a Conda environment file that pins all the versions and things that you need and so then you know like okay you know or theoretically you know for this stage in the analysis this was the software stack that i ran it against and that is actually very very important to know i know um, in particular there was one group that i was working with and they couldn't figure out why their analysis had stopped working and it was because they had updated a software version you know like and it was like somewhere like deep in the stack too it wasn't even the first thing that they were calling but it was something, you know, some software was calling some other software that was calling some other software, as we like to do in bioinformatics. And, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very intense problem. It's difficult to deal with because even when you have, you know, so let's say I have a Conda environment. I think Conda does the best job so far of dealing with these different environments, but it's not even guaranteed that if you have a Conda environment file and I install it today and then I go install it a year from now that it's going to be exactly the same or that, you know, versions won't have been deprecated and replaced. So in the last few years, I've really moved towards uh, dockerizing all these software stacks for the analysis. I think that's, you know, I think that's the best way to do that. You can get, um, they're not like MD5 sum checks, but they're close with the Docker containers. So I think that's probably the best way of doing that is that when you have the standard production analysis, build Docker containers, put that in some kind of build system. If you're using GitHub Actions, uh, there's like a very nice build system for Docker to do that. Upload, make sure you're tagging the living daylights out of those Docker images. And then as you're doing your analysis document, okay, this is the Docker image that we used, and this is the tag. And I think that's also where these kind of solutions that AWS comes up with are, you know, really, really shine because they have, Uh, very robust logging and it's pretty easy to turn on for a lot of the AWS services. It's really like you just press a button, like enable CloudWatch logging, press the button and you get, you know, very, very, very comprehensive logs. So if you ever do need to go back and audit, you can do that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Okay. So one of the things you wrote in your, um, in your intro chapter in your book that's available on your website, uh, you said, we care about good science more and more in the present day. Good science also relies on good data management and computational infrastructure. Uh, we've been talking a lot about that. I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. Uh, I'm curious for your assessment. How is the bioinformatics community doing on this front as a whole?
2: I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's definitely moving along. I think in some ways biology used to be a bit kind of behind the times in terms of computation. I don't know why this is exactly, but biologists. uh, So for example, if I, if I went to college and I got a degree in biology, it is very possible. I would get no computational training whatsoever beyond like maybe a little bit of Excel and probably even that like a really little bit of Excel. I wouldn't have to take any computer science courses or any programming courses. Whereas with, I think almost every other major in the sciences, That is expected. If you take physics, climatology, I was a neuroscience major, so I took um, I took at least a few programming classes. You know, we do expect for people to at least be a little bit familiar. I do think that's, you know, that's changing. Now, with kind of the advent of bioinformatics. Like, I don't think, uh, you know, when I first got started in bioinformatics, there weren't even very many, you know, actual degrees or programs in it. And now there are quite a few, you know, if you wanted to go get a degree in bioinformatics, you could go do that now. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's it's getting a lot better. You're having a lot of people who are at least very interested in it. Uh, I would say it's kind of very important to the world at large, I would say. Uh, you know, like if nothing else, COVID kind of, I think, showed us that bioinformatics is important. And we do need to have a lot more conversations between the scientists who know more about a particular family of genes than I know about my children. And the people who would be able to use that data to, you know, kind of enact some good in the world. I think, uh, yeah, I think overall, you know, there's a lot. There's also a lot more educational resources as well. So when I first started to want to get into data science and machine learning, I actually just went to like Udemy and took, I don't know, what a ten or twenty dollar course, and that that was enough to at least get me started. There's so much more of that. Um, I think because of the amount of data, that bioinformatics have to do with, like if you're dealing with sequencing projects, it's kind of become this necessary evil that people are much more savvy than they used to be. But I, yeah, I think like in all the sciences, it's still, it's still a struggle. People still have a tough time with data management. They still have a tough time, you know, versioning their analyses.
0: We all also have
2: to deal with the real world at times too. So for example, I think you asked earlier about versioning data. That can become extremely expensive, extremely quick if you are dealing with, you know, these very large amounts of data, they might not have the budget for those, you know, maybe their departments aren't as understanding about why they should have the budget. So there can be these kind of conversations. Now, sometimes you have to get things out in a certain amount of time too. you know, so you just have to deal with like time constraints and you have people being like this needs to be out last week. So it's yeah. There's also a lot of just real-world considerations as well that we all need to deal
1: with. Following up on people having limited resources, a lot of the times, um, you know, it's common in, in in science to you know you, you might have a principal investigator having having their own lab, but you also might have an institution that has a shared lab or a shared resource where you can have you know lots of equipment that you know. Might not make sense for everyone to purchase individually um, but they all sort of want what time sharing on and that sort of thing um, have you encountered any any of any of that uh, in your work or how are people kind of maybe collaborating on something where they, they kind of pool together their their budgets or something to set up one ADWLS infrastructure like they can kind of have shared login but but also keep their pre-publication stuff separate or how do, how do people manage collaboration or approach that sort of, that sort of thing, like an uh, interteam
2: I'm sure it's one of those things that's a bit different everywhere, but what i found for the most part is that in particular with academic research, you will have like a center. So I used to work in the center for genomics and systems biology at NYU. And then it's almost a bit like a corporate structure in a way. So you have kind of this umbrella and the umbrella has, you know, the the center for genomics and then within that you have all these different labs and each one of the labs is, you know, supposed to go off and get some, at least some of their own funding to fund their experiments. And, uh, it's a bit of a catch 22 because they need to have money to do that. And because research is not always, you know, research is kind of by definition exploratory, you're not always going to get a result out of it. They do get some money in, but there's, there's definitely a cap on that. So a lot of times, uh like larger research organizations they will create what are called core groups so i worked in a bioinformatics core and the bioinformatics core acts as you know essentially like a service department to all the labs so i didn't just work for one particular lab i worked for the center for genomics and then i would go and help different researchers in different labs um you know as needed in different phases of their development and i have seen that yeah, i've seen that quite a lot there are sequencing cores microscope cores and they will support it's one core team that supports many many labs and i think this startup i mean from what i've seen the startups that are a bit farther along anyways seem to have adopted a similar model they will have um they'll have like their different departments and then they'll also have you know i think usually they just call it like a software engineering team or something like that so they'll have you know their software engineering department that deals with the software stuff for the scientists so that they don't always have to deal with that
0: how how do you see that collaboration working between the software engineers and the data scientists is it uh like how involved in the the research and the scientific work are the software engineers? How much software engineering do the data scientists know? So how do you draw that line?
2: That is a fascinating line to draw because it is very much, it's a people problem. It's not a technical problem. So for example, I was saying earlier that I've worked in places where the IT department and the scientists, like they couldn't even speak the same language. So instead of, you know, the IT department having to manage uh, the science infrastructure, they would actually open up an entirely separate department or other people that could kind of speak the language so then you know so that gets to be very interesting because again you really you need to at least be able to speak both sides you know not necessarily you're an expert i wouldn't say that i'm an expert in any of the scientific topics that i've discussed but i know enough that i can at least go and talk to the scientists and i understand their problems and i understand um not not even just their problems but their priorities that's something that i've really found a lot is that You know, sometimes, and I found this a lot since I went out on my own as a consultant, it's not that the software engineers or the DevOps people can't solve those problems. It's that to them, those problems aren't a priority or they're solving problems that kind of matter in the software world, but don't matter so much, I suppose, in like the real world. Uh, You know, for example, one time I was working with a lab and they had all this data. It was like a machine learning computer vision kind of problem and they had. Uh, You know, they had years worth of data, and they really didn't have a good way to be able to go through and sort this data because it was, I don't know, it was like hundreds of thousands of images or something like that. And the software engineer was like, well, obviously we need to optimize the algorithm, which is, you know, very much the kind of take that you would expect from a software person, right? Like, oh, we need to, um, you know, like, we should just make the software better, and we should more elegantly abstract these classes and integer types, and this would just solve all of our problems. And, you know, and then the poor scientists were over here like losing their minds because they're like, well, we have hundreds of thousands of images, even if the algorithms, you know, really, really good. We still, you know, we still need another way to work around this. And so I wound up working with them for a bit and I spent a lot of time just talking with the scientists, like really, because it was a new area of science for me, really just trying to understand exactly what like exactly what was happening and exactly what their problems were. And I found that for this particular type of data people had been studying this for decades. So there was lots and lots of published research on this particular type of data. And they knew that um, like 90% of the data that they were imaging was not going to be relevant to the actual subject that they were studying. I, I'm trying to be really general about it because it, it was you know something that I signed kind of a scary NDA for, um, but like, you know, so they had, I don't know, like hundreds of thousands of images and, But 90 percent of them weren't going to be weren't going to be interesting for them so initially they had somebody who was going through and looking at these images like one by one and very carefully looking at them so one of the things that i did was i took a step back and i'm like well couldn't we get the algorithm to at least tell us whether or not this image is interesting or not and that's a very you know that is a much more solvable problem in the computer vision space especially with these nicer new libraries that we have like tensorflow and things and it turned out that actually was something that could be solved. It was solved within like a couple weeks, I think, just to get something that says yes, no, this is interesting or not. So we were able to get rid of, you know, like 90% of the data or something so that they, the scientists did not have to go through and do this really um, careful due diligence on hundreds of thousands of images. We got it down to like a couple thousand into the things that they were actually interested uh, in doing the research and, you know, and discussing further and, doing further imaging to generate you know even more data down the line so I find a lot of times in particular with my consulting I'm called in on a lot of problems like that where it's really you know it's not the technical skills people have the technical skills to solve these different problems but it's well are we solving the right problem which I think is something you know that's that's very very important that when different groups of people are working together we should all kind of take a step back and say like well, wait a minute, is there another way that we could tackle this if we understood the problem better? Um, you know, like could we could we find a way to kind of turn this problem on its head? Because again, you do have to deal with real world constraints if you have a very large amount of data and a small team of people to actually manually analyze that, you know you you have to find some way to decrease uh, to decrease the load on them so that they can ever actually get their work done.
0: That's awesome. I really like that. That was a lot. very yeah. cool problem. That was <laughs>
2: yeah, that was very interesting. That was a fascinating problem to work
1: on. It seems like a great connection point between yeah, the, the science and the software, the, the domain knowledge and and you know algorithmic knowledge because only the domain can like help you connect to like well what's actually garbage instead of like let's let's process all the garbage faster. Um, yeah, that that's that's really great
2: um, yeah i mean i found that out by actually sitting down and like you know i was trying to like sit there and like read the papers and then like i would have to like go to the scientists and they would have to like explain these very very simple things to me and then you know gradually i mean it was over like the course of weeks too to even really have enough of an understanding then you know then finally we were able to make the connection and i was just like wait a minute you mean like 90 percent of this data you don't even need and they were like no we just have to you know, we have to do the whole thing for due diligence, but most of it we we won't end up actually using. And then that was the, the point that was able to get us further.
1: I have a, a question appropriately enough towards towards the end of our our episode. Um, what happens near near the, the end of a project? You know, a lot of these science projects, they'll, they'll have like a yeah, beginning, middle and an end and like the end might be a uh, a paper or something that seems like it might be a little different than than maybe like a business case where you kind of have an ongoing thing that, that's tracking some process. So you kind of deploy it and you want to keep having it up. But it seems like a lot of times in research, you might, you might deploy something to, to get a result and then you might not need it anymore. Um, and so, but, but maybe sometime in the future that needs to get redeployed or something. So how does that, that end of, end of life of a deployment happen And in, 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 in your experience, uh, and when what are what are some some gotchas or, or just things to keep in mind?
2: I found uh, most really recently, I've been working with a lot of startups that are doing they're doing drug discovery, particularly for personalized medicine. So an example of that would be, say, I am in the unfortunate position that I have cancer. What would happen these days is I would go to the hospital, they would immediately sequence uh, you know like my genome and get every piece of biological information that they possibly could from me. They would send that to a company that would analyze that and then based on my genome i might react better to certain types of drugs um you know or chemotherapy or treatments and that's that's what's known as personalized medicine and there is a ton of research and a ton of money being poured into that and it's it's another one of these topics that's really fascinating to me because again you do have these scientists who have poured you know i mean maybe decades into producing this very particular type of expertise around maybe a certain type of protein or a certain type of gene family. I mean, these are, you know, if you want to talk about like niching down, like scientists, go talk to some biologists. They are the best at that. And what I found often is that I'm really starting to see a lot of these startups where these scientists, you know, they do have this kind of domain expertise. And so they decide, okay, I'm going to go out and do some drug discovery. know so they'll go through this whole process that we are discussing the hpc the development clusters and then at the end of that what they want to have is they want to have a piece of intellectual property that they can go sell to a pharmaceutical company and then that's going to fund their um you know like their next round of development and what i found like more and more is that the the kind of bar that you have to reach to be able to get to a piece of intellectual property from let's say from a pharmaceutical company has gotten significantly higher it used to be you know that what we had were again the pdfs that we you know spit out from r at the end of the day that were like well this is you know pretty much what we think it's doing and then you know maybe they would uh cite some literature or something like that but i'm finding more and more now the pharmaceutical companies really expect you know again this very interactive data visualization they want to be able to see everything that's happening they want to be able to see it in real time Uh, like very finely tuned,ly very fine-tuned control, the different parameters, just be able to examine the data, you know, every which way. Like if you've ever seen uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's a show, it's a sci-fi show, and they have the cool like hologram in the middle, and it's fun to watch because the actors are always going like, you know, like they're like moving it all around. That's that's what people want these days from, you know, from their intellectual property and getting there, for the scientists to get there definitely tends to be, mission. And that's, that's really kind of the direction that I see, that I see things going in. And I'm not just seeing that in, you know, in kind of startups and, uh, you know, people kind of more transparently, I suppose it's more of a business engagement, but even in like research and academic research as well, a lot of the newer tools and things that are coming out are really geared towards this kind of new age, I suppose, of data visualization, where We want everything in real time, examine all the parameters, look at all the data from all the sides and be able to do that now.
0: Okay. Uh, I think we're coming up on time. Jillian, before we leave, do you have any parting thoughts that you want people to know?
2: Um, no, I am going to be building BioDeploy. I took most of this month off from client work so that I could work on it. And I kind of like this idea of, you know, just, Building it out in public, I'm a huge proponent of open source software. All the individual modules and recipes are going to be uh, completely open source. Some of them are already on GitHub. It's—I'll put it in the show notes, but it's um, Dabble of DevOps, uh, deploy. Yeah, that's the name of the GitHub organization. All the recipes are going to be there. I'm hoping to at least have, you know, a lot of these recipes out. They're going to be You know, anybody is going to be able to go and grab them and hopefully, you know, at least, you know, theoretically run, run, make deploy, and then it will deploy an infrastructure for you, even if maybe you're not in a space where you could get uh, the paid product. But, you know, but it's important to me to support the entire open source community, as well as, you know, support the fact that I have daughters and they like to shop. So anyway, so that will be all open sourced. You can go follow along with me. Uh, I don't know, I'm hoping to kind of blog about it and then also to have the recipes up and about. This will also be the first time for me to deploy a SaaS on AWS, which I'm pretty excited about. I only recently learned that this was a thing. You can deploy a SaaS on AWS and AWS will take care of your procurement or like will take care of the payment processing, which means that I don't have to deal with people's procurement and I am like, Just as a lifestyle choice that really speaks to me so people pay aws and then aws will pay me so yeah again i like the idea of just kind of building it out in public and you know i think like all computer people i'm just kind of figuring it out as i go along so if you're interested in that kind of process too go go check out my blog hopefully there will be uh you know some more information on that soon
0: very cool well thanks for talking us through bioinformatics and biodeploy and all your work. Uh, I think that's it. All right, yeah, thank cool. you, Julia.
2: Thank you guys. Bye.